We've been going through the holy history. The theme for this series is found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. It says, these things happened to them as examples for us and were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. All of these events that took place with Israel in the Old Testament are not just history, they're his story. It's God's interaction and intervention in human history. God's plan to bring the whole earth to himself, to bring all the people of the earth to be a part of his kingdom. So we've been doing this series for the majority of uh, 2022 uh, on the holy history. And we're really walking through the Old Testament. And as I've observed, it's really been more character by character. Um, It's not a verse by verse study through the Old Testament that would take you know, 10 years probably. Um, but we're looking at major uh, events in the history of Israel and how we can apply those things to our lives because the Apostle Paul said, these things happen to them as examples for who? For us. And they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So the Old Testament is not unimportant. It's not just something that, you know, oh, I don't understand any of that stuff. I'm just going to kind of stick with the Psalms and the New Testament. And by the way, that's where I encourage people to start. Uh, There's no question, there's a lot of difficult stuff in the Old Testament. Um, However, I'm trying to give you guys a a pathway through that so that you'll understand. So we looked at Abraham. We looked at Jacob, who became uh, who? Israel. And he had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. They were uh, taken to Egypt to save the entire uh, history uh, of of Israel um, from famine. They could have died right there. But God providentially brought Joseph to Egypt and raised him up as second in command next to Pharaoh in Egypt. And he was responsible for saving really that whole part of the world because of his wisdom and telling Pharaoh that they needed to save the, uh, the wheat during their bumper crop years so that they could dispense it during the years of famine. Nonetheless, Israel was in uh, Egypt for 400 years and they grew from a large family of 70 people to a nation of thousands. And at that point, the the, uh, Egyptians turned them into slaves and they cried out and God raised up Moses and Moses listened to the Lord's instruction and delivered them from Egyptian slavery, delivered them across the wilderness, right to the edge of the promised land, the land that God had promised all the way back to Abraham 400 some years later, and they refused to go in. They were too scared. Uh, there are giants in the land, they said, and uh, we can't go in. We're, we, we look like grasshoppers to them. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. So uh, they stalled out right at a, a place called Kedesh Barnea, and then God ended up saying, okay, you don't want to go in and take the land, then you're going to wander in the wilderness until all of those of you who are old enough to go in and fight that won't fight die, and then your children are going to go in and take it. So that's exactly what happened. They wandered in that wilderness for 40 years until they all died, except for those that were under the age of 20, and two older people, uh, Caleb who was one of the 12 spies that went in and said, hey, man, we can take them. And Joshua, who was the one that God chose to lead them in. Uh, Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. And uh, so he led them in. Uh, they took the promised land. They settled there. And then they went through a period in the, in the book of Judges where there was just a cycle. I call it the sin cycle. Uh, they were 
enchanted by, enthralled by, drawn to the false gods of the land of Canaan. All right, these Baals. Baal is just a word that means Lord. Now, there was a God that was primarily known as Baal, was a fertility God, a male fertility God, and he had a female consort named Ashtara, and people worshiped them in very, very obscene ways. God wasn't pleased with this. They had high places all over the land where they built these little... Uh, kind of like temples, you might say, where they offered sacrifices to these false gods. Well, the people would worship these false gods, and then God would uh, send a nation in or a nation from within to oppress them. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a deliverer that we know as a judge, and that deliverer would get Israel free from whoever it was that was oppressing them, and then they would just turn right back down to the same thing again. The last of the judges is a fellow named Samuel, and uh, he was a judge, a deliverer. He was a prophet, and he was also a priest. And um, he really turned the hearts of the people of Israel back to Yahweh. Uh, by the time his, uh, his life was ended, he pretty much had the, the people worshiping the Lord and not these other gods. They were constantly being afflicted by the Philistines at this time. And uh, when Samuel was ready to die, um, his sons did not follow his ways. They were corrupt. They took bribes. They were not good judges. And so the people cried out and they wanted a king. So God said, all right, I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to give you what you think you want. Here it is. And he, they, he gave them Saul. And Saul was not a bad man. He just really wasn't much of a, of a godly man. He wasn't much of a believer. He was impacted by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, to the degree that they said, is Saul among the prophets? But he just, his heart was never the Lord's. His, he was always insecure. And because of that, he was constantly focused on himself and protecting himself and protecting his own little kingdom. We see this with politicians today, okay? And God became angry with him when he failed in one particular task. He was supposed to clear out the Amalekites and uh, uh, give all of their spoil to God as a sacrifice, and he didn't. He kept their king alive, and he kept all of their spoil, or not all of it, he kept the best of it. The, the stuff that they didn't want, they kind of threw away, right? And, and by the way, you know, we're coming to Christmas season, um, I think Christmas season is a time for us to look at giving and what giving means. When we give to God, we give our first and our best, not our leftovers. Amen? That's why we tithe. We don't tip. There are people that tithe and there are people that tip, right? Now, I don't follow the giving patterns of everybody in our church, and this is just a side note, right? But people that tithe take their first and their best, and they give that to the Lord. They set that aside anticipating that the promise of God is that he is going to rebuke the devourer for us. He is going to provide for us. He is going to protect our finances. And the 90% will go further than the 100% ever would. That's tithing. Tipping is, hey, what I got in my wallet? Here you go. Okay. Well, if you're really rich, you might have some hundreds in your wallet. Toss that in there. That'll help us pay the bills. That's great. But see, it's not really a blessing to you. Jesus saw a widow who had very little to live on, and she dropped a few copper coins in the offering box. And prior to her, there'd been a bunch of very wealthy people that had come in and dropped gold coins in. And Jesus pointed her out and said she gave more than anybody else. Not because she gave more numerically, but because it was more to her. She gave what she had to live on. 
It was her best. That's what we give. We give our best. Saul wasn't really into that. He kind of focused on himself a good bit, and they saved the best for themselves. Now, Saul said, hey, well, we're going to give this to the Lord. We, we were just going to bring it over here and give it as a sacrifice. Well, he just wanted more credit. He built a monument to himself. So God said, no, I'm done with you. So he raised up another king by the name of David. They anointed David. And, uh, you know, I thought about how long we should spend in the life of David, but uh, Pastor Craig last week gave a masterful overview of David's life where we saw that uh, David, in his confidence in the Lord, defeated a giant, Goliath. Remember, the, the, uh, the 12 spies had gone in. They said, there's giants in the land. We're afraid to go in. They wouldn't even go in and fight these giants with their whole army. This is one giant. Name was Goliath, and he's standing in the valley of Elah, and he's cursing Israel, and he's saying, you, you know, you all are scared. You can't come and fight me. We don't need to have a war. Just one of you come fight me. And if I beat you, if I beat your champion, then we get to rule. And if you beat me, then y'all get to rule. He didn't say y'all, but you know. And so David is a little shepherd boy at this point. Now, he probably wasn't little, little, but he wasn't a full-grown man yet. He was probably a teenager. And, uh, you know, he said, I'll fight him. And he goes and defeats him with nothing but a sling and a stone. All right. And to finish him off, by the way, it's kind of gruesome, but he did pull uh, Goliath's giant sword out and cut his head off. It's kind of, uh, it's funny in a morbid sort of way, I suppose. But um, when David met Saul, he was holding Goliath's hand, uh, hand, head in his hand by his side. I can just, I can just imagine this. Yeah. What? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, this is Goliath. Oh, that's, this is what's left of him anyway. So David, David goes on to become this great warrior and musician, by the way. Saul was tormented by evil spirits because the Lord had left him. And every time he was tormented by evil spirits, David would come in and play his harp and it would calm Saul. Saul also became a great warrior so much so that the saying among the women in Israel was, Saul has slain his thousands. We think he's great, but David is tens of thousands. Well, guess what? That made Saul jealous and Saul chased David all over the place. All right, so we could go on with that, but David continued to be faithful to the Lord. He refused to put his hand out against God's anointed, which was Saul, the one that God had chosen up to that point was Saul. David said, no, I, if the Lord wants to take him out, the Lord will take him out. I'm not going to be responsible for it, okay? And he had a number of occasions where he could have killed Saul, and he did not, right? So there's plenty of lessons here, but I don't have time for those lessons today, Um Nonetheless, David eventually ascended to the throne when Saul was killed in a battle with the Philistines, and uh, he was a very, very successful king. But he got to the place, and Pastor Craig covered this last week as well, where he was so successful that he became self-satisfied. And he just sent his, uh, his, uh, the head of the army in to fight, and he stayed home and lounged around and ended up committing adultery with a woman, making her pregnant and then having her husband killed. This is horrific. I don't think we take it as serious as it was. It was horrendous. The result was this amazing man who really, the legacy, and you'll see after he's forgiven and goes on, he returns to the Lord, but his legacy is that he's a man after God's own heart, but he made an absolute mess of his life, his family, and his kingdom. He messed up bad. He had another woman's husband 
killed. Now, it wasn't like a, a straight-up execution. It was more he sent a letter to his, uh, his uh, chief of his army, Joab, and he said, uh, yeah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah, this was her husband, his name was Uriah the Hittite, who, by the way, I don't know if you covered this or not, but did you know that Uriah was one of David's mighty men? He's mentioned as one of, he was one of David's best soldiers and he had him killed. That's horrible. He made a mess of his life. How many people do we see doing this today? How many politicians? How many preachers, right? Uh, People that just, and a lot of times it's for the same reason. It's for sexual reasons. We We are out of control in this country in this area absolutely out of control. And David was out of control at that point in his life. And he made a mess of everything. He was confronted by Nathan the prophet and he wept and he repented. And if you want to read the words of his repentance, he wrote them down in a song in Psalm 51. I'm not going to read it this morning, but it's a very, very powerful prayer of repentance. And the Lord did forgive him. However, there was still discipline Now, I want you to understand, discipline is not the same as punishment. We use the words um, interchangeably sometimes, but uh, in the the biblical understanding, we're not talking about paying somebody back for what they did, because if that would have been the case, then David would have died. But he did not. The Lord spared his life. But there was discipline. So, The reason that David had Bathsheba's husband killed was he had committed adultery with her and he made her pregnant. And so he had the husband killed, send him to the front lines. I don't know if I I finished my statement there when I said they sent a letter to Joab and Joab was told, send him to the front lines where the fighting is the hottest and then withdraw. Well, we don't know if Joab actually Uh, did the withdrawal part, but we do know he sent him to the front lines because Uriah was killed at the wall of this particular city and sent a note back to David. When David found out Uriah was dead, he took Bathsheba into his house as his wife and thought, okay, everything's going to be fine now, and we're just going to raise this little baby as mine. And David, by the way, did love his children, right? In fact, I really think if you read the life of David, you'll find that he pretty much spoiled his children, and this got him into trouble on a number of occasions. But he loved his kids. So um, Nathan the prophet comes into David and confronts him with his sin and says, you are the man, you have sinned against the Lord, and David repents, as I said. But there's discipline that results. Even though God forgives him, there's discipline. And that discipline was not intended for punishment, it was intended for correction. You see, God wants you on the right path. He wants you walk in the straight and narrow. He wants you paying attention to him. You really don't get away with anything, friend. Okay? We receive forgiveness from the Lord, but sometimes the consequences of our foolishness are what correct us if we turn that over to the Lord. Well, this is what happened to David. Uh, the child that he had with Bathsheba died, and David wept, and it hurt him very, very much. Okay? And then David's third-born son... Um, We'll talk about his firstborn and what happened in just a moment because you're going to see how sexual immorality was just cut loose in his family because he loosed it. You bind things up and you loose things all the time. And you can loose sexual immorality in your family for generations. You can loose abuse. You can loose addiction. 
If you are a parent, these things, it's not that, that God is punishing your children. These things are passed down to your children. They see what you're doing. They sense what you're doing, even if you're not telling them what you're doing. You don't ever really get away with anything. That's why, man, when you sin, you got to cry out to the Lord. And David did, okay? But his third-born son, Absalom, almost took the kingdom away from David. Like he, there's a long story behind this. And again, I just don't have time for it today. All of these stories are are worthy of their own sermon. But Absalom uh, secretively, well, not even so secretively, really uh, just kind of more um, worldly wise, went around and got a lot of support from people in Israel against his own father and then went after the kingdom. Well, Absalom ended up dying. Now, you would think, once again, you know, his son, David's son, just about took the kingdom and was going to take David's life, by the way. And David still wept and wept when Absalom died, even though he was finally restored and came back to the kingdom. Okay? Now, here's the interesting thing, and this is where I want this, I want, to, I want you to see how God takes this mess that David made and can turn it into, and does in this fact, turn it into a masterpiece, right? David's firstborn son uh, was a, a, an individual named Amnon, and Amnon raped his half-sister, Tamar. And it was the, the result of that that caused Absalom, the third-born son, two years later after the rape, to kill Amnon. So now we no longer have the firstborn. We don't know what became of the secondborn, and we don't have the thirdborn, okay? Um, all of these people were vying to become uh, the, the head of the family, okay? So then we have the fourthborn. Um, this is a, a man named uh, Adonijah, and he tries to go after the kingdom when David is very, very old. Um, but David has promised something to Bathsheba, and the Lord has promised it through David, that Bathsheba's son, her next son, remember the first son that she committed adultery with David and was pregnant with, died. But her next born son's name was, do you know? Solomon. Solomon. It is related to the Hebrew word shalom, which means what? Peace, right? Well, if, if you know anything about Solomon, you know that he was very wealthy and very what? He's known for his wisdom. The kingdom was given to Solomon rather than to Adonijah, right? Um, technically, if you just went in accordance with birth order, it probably would have gone to Adonijah. But God wanted something different. Here is this horrible, adulterous relationship. Now, there's not a lot that is said about Bathsheba's complicity in this. But see, we know that when Amnon forced his way with his half-sister, Tamar, she actually said, then just marry me. Don't send me out and, and make me like, you know, a, a prostitute, essentially. But he didn't want to have anything to do with her anymore. He kicked her out, okay? Um, so although David was a very powerful king and is completely guilty of everything that he did, okay, it doesn't mean that Bathsheba didn't have a degree of complicity in acquiescing to David's sexual urges, okay? 
But what I'm going to say is this. Here is this messed up, adulterous relationship. What do you do with that? You just kick it away, right? Just throw Bathsheba out. I repented. You're like a prostitute to me. I repented of you. I don't want to have anything. No. He married her. He made things right with her. He lived the right way, even though it was a mess. And God took that and turned it around and raised up next to David, the greatest king in Israel. Amen? Guys, I don't know if you've messed up. Actually, I know you probably have. Because I have. But I don't know if you've ever messed up so badly that you thought, I'm never going to recover from this. And this might not even be something that you do personally. It can be, you know, look at David's family and look at the kingdom and look at how messed up that was because of his choices, right? So things may be messed up in your life and in your family because of other people's choices. And you didn't even have anything to do with it. Or maybe like Bathsheba, you had a little bit of complicity in it. It doesn't have to be a sexual mess up. It can be a lot of different things right? I'm not going to go on a fishing expedition and try to make everybody feel bad about the things that they've done wrong. But the reality is, you know, we can go so far in making mistakes and committing sins and outright rebelling against the Lord that we may think, you know what, I'm never going to recover from this. Maybe the Lord will forgive me and let me into heaven, but you know, uh, I messed up, right? And see, some of us have this really, you know, these really, really harsh consciences that won't let us get back up. See, the reality is the scripture says that if we confess our sins, what? God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But confessing your sin isn't the same as just saying, oh, yeah, well, I messed up. Man, again, you need to read Isaiah, excuse me, Psalm 51. Because David cried out to the Lord. His heart was broken. There was contrition there. When you sin and you really understand the depravity of your sin and you really understand how much this hurts God, then it causes that grief for what you've done. But see, once we forgive, once we receive God's forgiveness, then we can get up and we can move on and we don't continue to live in the shadow of that disaster And we let God restore our lives and make us into what he wants us to be, right? So um, what I want you to see is that the result of God's forgiveness and restoration in David's life was the masterpiece that we call Solomon. Now, uh, it, it depends on what the Lord leads me to do. We'll look at Solomon's life as well because he was an amazing king, but he messed up as well. Guess where? Yep, sexually, same problem. These things get traced through families. So what I want to do as the result of, I didn't read a bunch here, okay? I related these stories to you, okay? Um, But I want to look at several points of application here for you. Um, First application, uh, letter A, is God forgives even the worst of sins if we genuinely repent, amen? So I quoted 1 John 1, 9, Proverbs 28, 13 says that if we uh, renounce our sins, if we forsake our sins, right? If we conceal our sins, it says we will not prosper. See, the the thing is, you think you're not going to get caught. No, 
confess. If we conceal our sins, we will not prosper. But if we forsake them and renounce them, we will find mercy. By the way, that's a proverb. Who wrote the Proverbs? Solomon. Good. Next point of application. So first, God forgives even the worst of sins. And then there are consequences to sin even after it's forgiven. We've got to continue to seek the Lord's mercy and grace. And we've got to bind up whatever sinful patterns have been loosed on our families. Um, I've heard preachers call these generational curses, right? There's scripture that talks about God visiting the sins of the fathers down to the third and fourth generation of their children, right? This is not God punishing the children for what the fathers have done. It is when we loose these things in our families, If we don't, you know, if there's something in your family, there's sexual immorality in your family or addiction in your family or abuse in your family, if you don't clearly make a break and repent of those things and repudiate those things, they just continue going on with you. And it's a lot of different things like this. I remember back when I was a youth minister, back when uh, Craig and Rachel were young. um, (laughs) What? It was back when they were young. Okay, let me put it this way. When I met Craig and Rachel, they were just a little bit older than Jubilee. All right? But there was a, an older young person in our youth group. And when I, when I came in, I kind of like my regime, I guess, was different than the previous youth minister. And so these older kids, I mean, they were, they were cool and all, but they never really kind of got into the groove and understood what I was trying to teach. But one of them I remember, and I won't mention his name, would bully these younger kids. And I would say, dude, why do you do that? And he said, well, that's what happened to me. They used to bully me, so I just bully them. That's exactly what a generational curse is like. Wow. If you got beat up as a kid and you got bullied as a kid, you turn around and become a bully? Seriously? But do you know what? It is often the case that children who come from abusive homes become abusers. You got to make a cut, right? That's why we have to continue to repent. We realize that these things are passed down, all right? Um. God disciplines his children. And you can read Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 that talks about that. It says, if you're not disciplined, you're not real children, right? You're illegitimate children, not authentic children, if you're not disciplined by the Lord. And that word disciplined, by the way, in Greek and from Hebrews 12, means training, okay? It's not whipping, it's training. Again, it's correction, it's, it's kind of like I, I you know, teach the karate club on Tuesdays. That's training. And sometimes it's hard. You know, we do hard things in there. But it's training. Well, you train your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You train them and you correct them and you send them in the right direction. So Hebrews 12, 11, ending the, the section where it talks about how discipline is necessary. It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful right? I mean, when you're going through a hard workout, yeah, okay, endorphins and all this other stuff, but you know, I don't always really feel endorphins. I just feel sore, okay? Um, But in the end, I feel better. I can't tell you how many times I go to the gym and it's just a habit for me now. So I don't really have to think about it. 
And there's just been a number of times, especially in the last couple of weeks, I'm just like, I don't feel like this today. I just don't want to do this today. But I'm driving up there anyway. And I get there, and even after the first quarter of the workout, I feel like, blah. I, you know, I'm like not lifting very much weight. I'm just kind of barely going through it. But you know what? Invariably, when I'm done, I feel good. Okay, so use that as a microcosmic example of what might be going on in your life. The Lord may be taking you through a time of discipline. God disciplines his children, and that's good. And again, I mentioned this earlier, but God's purpose for this is not punishment, but correction. The question is, will you be corrected? Over and over again, uh, Solomon writes in the Proverbs that fools refuse to receive correction. They don't want to be corrected. They don't want somebody to tell them what to do. This is why a lot of people say, I don't believe in God anymore. No, you just don't want anybody to correct you and tell you how to live your life. Uh, Next point of application, D, you cannot thwart God's purpose or alter his promises for your life. Wow. This has kind of been a theme for the last several times I've preached on this. You cannot thwart God's purposes. You cannot stop his promises for your life. The scripture says that the the calling of God um, is irrevocable, or specifically the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. That's Romans 11, 29. God makes a promise, he's going to keep his promise. Now, that doesn't mean you may not put yourself in the right position to receive the, the fulfillment of the promise, but God continues to extend that promise. And he anticipates that you're going to step up and repent and get in condition and get in position so you may receive the promise. You know what it says in 2 Timothy 2.13? Oh, man, see, I've lost some of you, and you needed to hang on to this point. You really did. Though we are faithless, what? He remains faithful. Say that. Say, Say, although we are faithless. He remains faithful. So yeah, there's times when you stumble, okay? David stumbled, and this wasn't the only time. This was just the most glaring time. But God remains faithful. So the the point of the sermon is the next point here. Um, The Lord can take your mess and turn it into his masterpiece. The question is, will you choose to surrender everything to the Lord's control? Will you be wise and learn the lessons that he's trying to teach you? God is going to teach you even through your past mistakes. And he can make something beautiful out of your junk. And really, the, um, I guess the overarching theological verse for this uh, whole sermon would be Romans 8.28. And had you gotten a bulletin, you would read that that's in the bulletin. What does Romans 8.28 say? God causes all things, what? To work together for the good. For everybody? Nope. For those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. God will take even your mistakes and cause them to work out for your good and for his glory you've got to surrender to him. You can't keep walking down that same dark road and think that everything's going to be okay. You see, 
that same passage where in 2 Timothy where it said 2 Timothy 2:13 although we are faithless he though we are faithless he remains faithful it also says if we deny him he will deny us here's my warning this whole message has been nothing but good news if you've been paying attention but my warning is don't give up don't deny him don't become an apostate Don't turn your back on God because of some political position or because you've changed your mind regarding sexual issues. You see, it's like we're so tuned into the culture that we're not paying attention to Christ any longer. And then what happens is you turn your back on the things that Jesus said, and pretty soon you're like, who's Jesus? Who's God? I don't know if I believe in God. Maybe I believe in God. He's out there somewhere but I don't want anybody in charge of my life except me. Well, and the culture, right? Lord can take your mess and turn it into his masterpiece, but what you've got to be willing to do is to continue to repent and to believe. So what you must do is continue to believe. Don't deny the Lord. If we deny him, he will deny us. That's 2 Timothy 2.12. Listen to this from Hebrews 10.36 through 38 as I conclude. You need to persevere, You need to what? What does persevere mean? Endure, be steadfast, stick it out, right? You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. We got a lot of people shrinking back today. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So my friend, the question is, are you shrinking back? Are you pressing on? You may have messed up. It may have been a long time ago. It may have been recently. But what you need to do is stand up, turn back around, get back on the narrow path, and let God turn your mess into his masterpiece, just like he did with David and Bathsheba and Solomon. That's the good news of this great loving God who loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die in our place. That one and only son who rose from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of God the Father and remains there interceding for you and I as we wade through this mess down here. I want you to get back on that path. I want you to see that God's got good news for you. He's got good stuff in store for you. He always has. Maybe you haven't listened to him well enough. Maybe you haven't grabbed a hold of those promises. But friends, there are promises in the Bible that are so, so powerful. They can pick you up and drag you out of the mess that you're in. And you can have a life that you never dreamed of having. This is the kind of sermon that I would preach in a different way to inmates. You think about people that are in jail that have messed up their lives. You know, I know, I know former young people in this church, uh, one in particular, who I poured life into for three years, four years, and he's serving an eight-year sentence right now. I mean, he went in when he was like 19, not going to get out until he's 27. So this is the message I would have for him. Yeah, you made a mess. There's no question you made a mess. 
but God can turn your mess into his masterpiece. And I'm hoping and praying and looking forward to God doing that with that young man and with many more of us. Amen? Let's pray, and then we're going to enter back into a time of worship, and I hope you'll pay attention to the Lord. And since Miss Mary is normally standing up here praying for you, why don't you use this? If you don't have to really contend with anything in your own personal life, use this as a time to pray for her. Father, thank you so much for uh, the power of your word. I thank you for laying these examples out before us as a pattern in the Old Testament and allowing us to learn from them. I thank you for the principles in your word. I thank you that no matter how many times we fall flat on our faces, you still have us. You still lift us up and you put us back on the path. And I pray that nobody in the hearing of my voice will give up. I pray that we will return to you and live our lives openly under the Lordship of Jesus, in whose name I pray.